Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There are two growing traffic jams in two oceans, but just 80 kilometers apart. We look at why so few container ships can get through the Panama Canal, why the problem is set to get worse, and how fewer passages will lead to higher prices. And in Britain, some long-ago agricultural policy has ended up wiping out most of the country's heritage pig breeds. Stopping them from disappearing altogether hinges on a counterintuitive market force. Britons have to eat more of them. But first... Make no mistake, today's vote's going to be long remembered, and history's going to judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. We can't let... Last night, Republicans in America's Senate voted narrowly to block the next tranche of military aid to Ukraine. The emergency spending bill put $111 billion on the table, about half of which was allocated for Ukraine's war chest. Republicans refused to back the bill without Democrats accepting stricter immigration policies at America's southern border. President Joe Biden accused the Republicans of holding the Ukraine funding hostage to further their extreme policies. I tell you, I'm not prepared to walk away. And I don't think the American people are either. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. It's important to see the long run here. He's going to keep going. He's made that pretty clear. Extreme Republicans are playing chicken with our national security. And now they're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and damage our national security in the process. The wrangling in Congress reflects a wider funding fatigue among Ukraine's allies. Meanwhile, Russia is only increasing its pace of missile and drone attacks. The longer the fighting continues, the less likely a Ukrainian victory becomes. The realities of this war have changed. As the war goes on, the danger is that the war shifts back in favor of Vladimir Putin and Russia. Oliver Carroll is The Economist's correspondent in Kyiv. It's hard to say that Russia is winning at the moment. There are places along the front lines in which Ukraine is pushing. There are places in which Russia is pushing. In some of the places, Russia is losing perhaps 900 men a day in terms of killed in action and wounded in action. But the reason why a Putin victory looks more possible now than at any time, perhaps since the start of the war, is that winning is about perception. It's about morale and it's about endurance. 
But on that question of uh, perception and endurance, why is it that as time passes, uh, the chances should be getting better for Russia? So the important thing to remember here is mobilization. And I use that in four senses of the word. The first, the idea of Russia mobilizing its industry. Now, in the conditions of sanctions, Russia has been able, somewhat amazingly, to develop its military complex. In 2022, sanctions did affect production. Production went down to perhaps 300 or 400,000 shells a year. But according to the figures I've seen, that's now predicted to go up to 2.5 million shells by 2024. They've consolidated production of drones and loitering munitions, which are having a real effect on the front. Ukraine hasn't been able to do the same, and there's certainly some criticism of the president for not being able to put the management in process to do that. The second, mobilization of people. Russia at the moment is able to get a lot of their manpower needs by recruiting from the poorest and those in prison, even cannibals, according to one recent report. In contrast, Ukraine is struggling on that front. There's a mobilization of mines happening in Russia, and there's a mobilization of the world. A year ago, two years ago, when the war started, Russia was in isolation. And now, he's been able to drum up support in the global south, and in countries, China, Iran, he's no longer isolated. Added on top of that, we have war fatigue and waning support in the West, and politics returning to Ukraine itself. What do you mean when you say politics has returned to Ukraine? When the full-scale invasion happened, the public and the politicians united behind Zelensky, most internal politics was put to bed. And cracks are now emerging, not only along political lines, but most worryingly between the military and the political leadership. So much so that in conversations I've been having with members of President Zelensky's own party, that has created an unstable situation inside the country. Well, let's tackle the more worrying, you say, of those cracks between the military and political leadership. What's that look like? Well, we've certainly known for some time that relations between Volodymyr Zelensky and his commander-in-chief, Valery Zaluzhny, have been difficult, probably since May of last year. There were reports in the summer that the president may even be considering replacing his top commander. But it's been most recently, following the Economist's own interview with Zaluzhny in November, that brought that conflict out into the open. Zaluzhny essentially said that Ukraine's war had reached a stalemate, and that was in contradiction to the much more optimistic public statements of his president. Zelensky publicly rebuked Zaluzhny for the headlines, and he essentially warned Zaluzhny to stick to military affairs rather than, in his words, do politics. Zaluzhny has not publicly, at the very least, declared any political ambitions. But internal figures that I've seen do show that he is much more popular than the president, who has suffered recently because of concerns over corruption scandals in his government. And that's certainly not a great position to be in for a president who, just a very short time ago, was the most famous politician in the world. And I suppose it's also clearly bad for that kind of instability to arise when you're at war with a, a bigger aggressor. Certainly. And it was described to me that this was a fairly predictable result of a campaign that hadn't gone to plan. In the absence of a victory, there's been a blame game. The politicians saying that their generals are Soviet-trained twits, in their words, and the generals saying that the politicians are interfering twits. And there is also a sense of people covering their back. There is 
a criminal investigation going on at the moment, which is looking into what happened in the south of the country where Russia gained a foothold very quickly. And my understanding is that Zaluzhny is named as a witness in that criminal investigation. In Ukraine, witnesses often become themselves censors of the criminal investigations. And so how is Russia taking advantage of those splits? So Russia is essentially engaged now in an information campaign to engage those very real grievances for their own benefit. So I was speaking to the military intelligence agency, Hor, who told me that they saw evidence for what they described as three new Russian strategies, which they developed for different constituencies. An information campaign in Russia itself, there was an information campaign in the West, and then this third information campaign in Ukraine. The idea being to sow doubts about Ukraine's ability to exist as a country, as a trusted partner at home and abroad, but also about the direction of war in general. Alongside that, there is a campaign to sow doubt in the minds of the soldiers themselves. And it's important to emphasize just how much there are two worlds at the moment. One is the world of Kiev, in which, in some respects, the country is returning to its usual state of internal squabbles, but also an economy which is working. And the front line, which is engaged in the same existential battle which most of the country faced earlier on. And that disinformation campaign is using very advanced technology, deepfake videos of various commanders, even the lowest levels, encouraging subordinates essentially to surrender. And Russia isn't actually being able to do all that it wants on the battlefield. But here they're actually enjoying a lot of success. So there are those successes, as you mentioned, but, but also you say that if time is on Russia's side, then all they really need to do is just sit tight. Yes. Originally, there was hope that sanctions would simply make things unbearable in Russia to fight this long war. I mean, the reality has proven otherwise. In Ukraine, opinions vary. Some people still believe there is a chance that Russia may disintegrate somehow and therefore cease to be that existential threat to Ukraine. Other people are really pushing for Ukraine to focus on resources and to try and look for ways to win this asymmetric battle by making technological leaps. And there is a possibility of a black swan event, such as Putin dying, or a distraction which pushes Russia away from Ukraine. But the overall sense is that while Putin is in power, he is addicted to Ukraine and will remain focused on Ukraine. Some people think that by 2025, there will be strains in the economy in Russia, and that may cause Mr. Putin to look again at his war. But the year after next is a world away, especially with US elections on the horizon. The problem with this war is not what will happen the year after next, it's what will happen tomorrow. Oliver, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. For 
For more than a hundred years, the Panama Canal has been an indispensable shortcut between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The gates are closed and the water is pouring in at the rate of 8 million gallons a minute. Because of it, ships bound from, say, Japan to America's eastern seaboard don't have to loop all the way around the tip of South America. Rather, they slide into one of the canal's 12 locks and make their way across Panama, accompanied by tugboats to keep them in line. The journey through the canal takes a matter of hours and can cut shipping times by weeks, but this essential route is under threat. The Panama Canal is suffering from the effects of a really severe drought this year, and it's meant that fewer ships can transit. Kate Parker writes about Latin America for The Economist. It's really very difficult to get a booking slot, and as a result, we have this huge build-up of ships waiting on either side of the canal, all trying to get through, paying more. It's also starling up global shipping at what is a peak time in the run-up to Christmas. So talk me through the mechanism, though, there. Why does drought change the amount of ships that can get through the canal? Well, it's all because the canal itself is located 26 metres above sea level. And so to cross it, ships are basically lifted up from the sea level through a series of locks. They cross the canal and then another set, the other side, lowers them back down to sea level. These locks use fresh water to function and they get that from a few reservoirs that are located close by. But the problem is that these locks use huge amounts of water. And by that, I mean 200 million litres for each crossing. So that's roughly the equivalent of 80 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Now, the difficulty is this year that there hasn't been anywhere near enough rain. Panama has a wet season, and that runs from April through to mid-December, when essentially these reservoirs are filled up. But this year, that just hasn't happened. The rainy season is caused by a weather system that moves across Panama, but that's been stuck south of the country. And um, what we've seen actually are water levels at these reservoirs actually dropping during the rainy season, which is unprecedented. And we're now at this situation where the dry season's about to start. Um, water levels at the reservoirs that feed the canal are pretty much at all-time lows. And so how many ships are actually getting through then under these conditions? The canal is run by the Canal Authority, which decides how many ships are allowed to pass each day. And at full capacity, under normal weather conditions, the canal can handle anything between 38 and 40 each day. But now this figure is much lower. So at first in the summer, we saw numbers were cut pretty gradually. But what we've seen more recently are much bigger reductions. And we're now at the stage where there's a cap of only 22 ships that are allowed to make that journey each day. So basically, we are a long way from full capacity. And from February next year, that number will fall again to just 18. And I think in terms of the impact of all this, what we're seeing is this is pushing up transit prices quite substantially. There's usually a fixed fee to cross the canal, but there are a few last minute slots that are held back and auctioned off to the highest bidder. And because it's so tough to get a booking reservation, because there are fewer ships allowed to transit, there's much more competition for these auction slots and companies are paying millions of dollars in some cases to get those spaces. So it really is just a matter of how many ships they can get through the locks under these sort of low water conditions. No, I'm afraid there are other problems as well, because as well as cutting shipping numbers, the canal authorities also having to cut the amount of cargo that these ships are allowed to carry. Because the problem is that as water levels drop, there's more of a risk that these huge really heavy ships might scrape the bottom of the canal. There are already some rules in place for the very biggest of these ships. That means that when they cross, they have to be substantially lighter, up to 40% in some cases. 
But the rules are probably also going to have to be rolled out for mid-sized ships too next year. And that's basically another major headache for shipping firms. So not only is it tougher for them to transit the canal, but they're also having to do so carrying much less cargo. What some are doing, they're actually unloading cargo at one end of the canal, transporting it by train across the country and then reloading it at the other end. But that's not really ideal. And it's only a solution if you're carrying containers. You can't do that, for example, if you're carrying energy products. And I think, I suppose, underlying all of this, I think there's just not really any decent alternatives. So if you're shipping from the US East Coast to East Asia, for example, you know, the canal is around 50 miles long. It takes roughly 10 hours to cross ocean to ocean. Now, if you can't use a canal, you know, your alternative is heading south around Cape Horn, but that adds an extra 8,000 miles to your journey. So not only does it take much, much longer, but you have extra fuel costs as well. The other alternative is heading the other way through Suez, but that's also another huge detour. So presumably this is a big headache, not just for the shippers, but for the canal authority itself. I and mean, what's to be done? Well, there are lots of discussions going on at the moment, but I think certainly no quick fix. There is a push to use more water more efficiently at the canal. So the canal authorities looking at greater recycling, in effect. And there are also efforts to cut public water consumption, which is pretty high in Panama. And that's because these res- reservoirs that feed the canal also provide drinking water to half of Panama. The thinking is that if they can then slow the rate at which these reservoirs are drying up, they might you know, just about make it to the end of the dry season next May without having to restrict shipping even further. The problem is for me that even if all of these efforts are successful, it has so little effect overall just because of the sheer scale of water that the canal uses. So the Canal Authority is having to think about more ambitious plans. It's considering a project to dam the Indio River, uh, which is located south of the canal. Uh, and the idea is that this would create a new reservoir that could, in theory, be joined up to the canal and provide a new water source. And this is hugely controversial. It's located in a biodiverse area where people live. So if they go ahead with it, it would require flooding the land and displacing local communities. Which presumably is not going to go down very well at all with those communities. Yeah, I think it would go down pretty badly. We've seen some really big protests in recent months in Panama over a local copper mine. And I just really struggle to see how the government would be able to go ahead with a new reservoir project without sparking massive social unrest. And also, even if they do, you know, it's worth pointing out that it would be a huge project and it wouldn't be finished for years. So I think in the meantime, we're just going to have to get to use to the idea of reduced traffic through the Panama Canal and higher shipping costs, which unfortunately for you and me will probably end up being passed on to the consumer. Kate, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. white is Britain's most important pig, and it has been for a long time. Caitlin Talbot reports for our Britain section. In 1955, the pork industry was ailing, and the government thought that inefficiency was caused by the large variety of breeds in Britain. They suggested instead that farmers focused on one breed, and this lucky pig was the large white. Now, the large white is a pink, galumphing great animal that piles on weight very quickly and it enjoys being indoors, so it's perfect for industrial pig farming. But as the large white snuffled fields across the country, other pigs disappeared. Many are now incredibly rare, 
In fact, the only reason that many of them exist is because a few people think that they're quite tasty. So what does the, the sort of the, the current demographics of British pigs look like? If I do a pig census, what would I find? So some pigs that you'd have found in the 1950s are now extinct, and many of them have lovely names like the Dorset Goldtip or the Lincolnshire Curly Coat, and others are clinging on by their trotters. To find Britain's rarest pig, I went to Balaam House Rare Breeds Farm in Suffolk. It was a sleepy Sunday afternoon, but the farm was quite busy. Children were crowded around pig pens while their parents were feeding the white park cow, which has these huge black horns. And there was this delicious smell coming from the outdoor kitchen, which might sound a bit weird for a farm. So hold on, some of these farm animals weren't just for looking at, they were for cooking. Oh yeah, and that's the whole point of the farm. So Neil Storer, the owner of the farm, made it quite clear that he didn't want to hide anything. He wants his visitors to know that the pig pen that sits right next to the outdoor kitchen is kind of all part of this story. To be able to take advantage of those differences and, as you say, tell, tell the story makes it much more interesting. So Neil took me to see the middle white pig. And this is a pig that is five times rarer than the giant panda. Never put your fingers anywhere near a pig's mouth because okay. they, will, they will just snap. But They really are in critically low numbers. Only 56 sows had litters of registered piglets last year. Such rarity isn't actually as uncommon as it might seem. The logic of industrialisation and efficiency means that native farm animals are in critically low numbers. The government reckons around 80% are at risk of being lost forever. And populations of breeding females really are tiny. You know, 22 venal cows, 13 old English nanny goats. A handful of farmers are responsible for saving these breeds in many cases. But in a weird twist, their fortunes are looking up, largely because they're delicious. Hold on, you're going to have to explain this to me. Uh, Why is being tasty good for their fortunes and not terrible? These animals were bred for food, so the only way to really ensure that they survive is to eat them again. To create a market for them. Yeah, essentially. And it's a luxury market. One farmer compares it to how the great chateaus produce wine. That's how he produces his sausages. In 2006, celebrity chef Heston Blumenthal was on the hunt for the best steak in Britain. And he said it was the Longhorn Steak. Numbers had doubled by 2012. And this exemplifies the kind of counterintuitive notion that they're actually growing in number because farmers know that there's a market for them. There is also a slightly more serious reason for keeping them alive, and that is to ensure that we have enough genetic diversity that our food is safe from disease in Britain. For that reason, the Rare Breed Survival Trust, which is a charity in Britain, has created a gene bank with many of these breeds to make sure that if we do lose them, their genes aren't lost. But for the ones that are out there and for which markets might be created, it's down to whether we eat them, whether they're tasty. Like... If if you're not a tasty animal, then good luck to you. Yes, but smart farmers are finding, largely because they're already on their farms, that they can actually do other things with them too. James Rebanks, a Lake District shepherd, has made Lake District tweed 
from Herdwick sheep, which are native to the area. And he's created a real brand around that while the horns of the Herdwick sheep are made into walking sticks or buttons. So if you're smart, you can turn a native breed into a brand. And that might be the trick to bring them back from the brink. Caitlin, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.